man, that's legit sermon video. It's like hyped up. Man, that's, that's awesome. Love our, our video team and people that uh, put that together. So, hey, again, just want to reiterate, I know you've been welcomed, but welcome to Oakwood. So glad that you're here this morning. It's a great, great time to be a part of God's family here at Oakwood and to celebrate it together on Easter. Of course, one of the, uh, the biggest Sundays of the year for God's people and God's church because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, um, and as Michael just said, we're starting a new series today called Scandals. Uh, and so it's, it's a great day to be here because you're in the first part of this series. It'll build every week. And we're going to go through several um, scandals from the Bible. You know, uh, those things that might grab the headlines of the paper today. Uh, when you bring up your thing online, it'd be the, this would be the headline. Uh, some scandalous, sometimes controversial things that happen in Scripture. And what we're going to do in this series is we're actually going to be looking at it from two, from two parts. We're, we're, we're looking at it to see what our perspective is on the Word of God and how it translates and applies to our lives today. But also, I think you're going to find that it strengthens your faith when you read and understand and look at these stories. So it's going to be very, very interesting, uh, very impactful. We hope that you're here every week. And if you uh, can't be here, uh, just as it's available today, we're always online. And so if you have to travel and miss a week, uh, be sure to catch the uh, content online. We're live and you can uh, download it during the week as well. So we're just, uh, th again, thrilled that you're a part uh, of, of our services this morning. And so let's, let's get to it. Let's open up the Word of God together. So if you have your Bible, turn it to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning as we begin with the scandal of Easter. The scandal of Easter. Could Easter be scandalous? Hmm. The scandal of Easter. If you didn't bring your Bible today, by the way, if you, if you come with one of these things, which I know nobody carries these anymore, but if you come with a phone or uh, an iPad or a tablet, you can download the Oakwood app. And uh, on the front page of the app there is sermon notes. And if you click on there, it'll actually take you to all the scriptures and all the bullet points and everything with the content of the message today. Plus, there's a way for you to actually take notes in the app and save them. So pretty, pretty cool feature. So, um, but here at Oakwood, we want you to engage the word of God. We want it to impact your life. And we know sometimes God might bring a thought to your mind. We want you to write that down. Uh, be a part of God's family. Be a student of the word this morning and allow God to speak to us in the maximum way possible. So let's, let's begin this morning by uh, reading John's Gospel, chapter 20, the first two verses uh, of the resurrection morning account from John. This is what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, you know what that means? It was early, early. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, which is shocking because the thing weighed like two tons. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Ooh, sounds controversial, doesn't it? Jesus died. He was put into this tomb, and now he's not there. That might have been something that was perhaps, you know, a part of the Jerusalem times on the, the Monday following the resurrection. Tomb empty, no one knows where Jesus is. And it's kind of, it's kind of become this scandal, and, and this is where I want to begin this morning in this series. Did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? Did he really resurrect from the dead? And when you start with that question, then it kind of brings up this other question that we have to ask ourselves. And, and that's this question about, well, then, did Jesus really actually die? 
So did, did Jesus actually die on the cross, like scripture and historians say, and then did he actually resurrect from the dead? I think it's important that we look into the word of God and allow God to speak to us this morning, maybe to show us. And to answer the, the death question, uh, that one's probably settled a little quicker and a little faster than a whole lot of other things. Well, we have, of course, the biblical accounts that say Jesus died. And, and we know the events that happened around his death that he actually died. Uh, we know that he actually died before the two criminals on the sides of him died. Because as it got later in the day, it was a special day for the Jews and for those there in Israel. And, and so it, because it was Passover, they didn't want uh, these these bodies, you know, groaning and crying out and hanging on the cross or dying. They wanted to get those guys off the crosses in time for Passover, get them, get them buried. And so as it got later in the afternoon and, and Jesus had already died, they said, hey, we need to move this process along. And so for these other two guys who, you know, maybe they hadn't been flogged, they hadn't bled as much as Jesus. And so um, they go to break their legs. And it's recorded in, in, in Scripture, and it's historically recorded as well, as this is something that they did to move the process along. Because then if you're hanging on the cross and they break your legs, you, you don't have that support to pull yourself up to exhale and, and inhale breaths anymore. So you, you, you basically, it moves the process along a little faster. Now all they can pull on is these two pivot points of the nails. And with their body already contorted and suffering so much and so much loss of blood, it was just... And it was interesting because it was recorded in the scripture, it says there that Jesus' legs were not broken because they said he was already dead. The legionnaire, uh, the Romans there, says to one of the guards, hey, you know, uh, go ahead and break Jesus' legs. He said, hey, he's already dead. There's no reason to sit here and whack his, his legs. I'm, not, I'm sure it's not enjoyable to break someone's legs, you know, and big mallets. And, and so they're like, hey, we don't need to, he's already dead. And he's like, well, hey, are you sure? Take the spear, go ahead and run it, run it into his side, up into his heart. And so up under the rib cage and through into Jesus' heart, they... They, they stab him with the spear, and, and the, the scripture says that outflowed the blood and the water. Now, that's that, that fluid sack around the heart that had been through so much. And so the fluid and the blood run out, and Jesus doesn't move, and he doesn't say anything or do anything. And so you presume that he is dead. Uh, there, most people with their conspiracy theories of the Bible and of Christianity and all of those kind of things, they don't really argue much about that Jesus died. And so I think it's safe for us to trust the biblical accounts to trust the historical accounts and say, okay, Jesus, Jesus really did die on the cross. There's other evidence that, that, that you can pull to get that kind of information too. But then it leads us back to that question, the question of Easter, the question that really, if you think about it, builds the entire faith of Christianity upon, did Jesus really resurrect from the dead. And some people, they try to explain that away. And I want to share a few of those thoughts and theories with you this morning. Some people try to explain it away. And they might say something like this. Hey, the Roman soldiers stole the body from the tomb. And that's why there's this whole resurrection story about Jesus is because these Roman soldiers stole the body from the tomb. But if you understand that there was a Roman seal on the tomb and you understand what that meant, and it meant death if it was broken, then nobody's messing with the tomb. Well, let, let, let's read about that. It, it's found in, in, in Matthew chapter 27 in Matthew's gospel. And you, and you don't have to turn there. You can just listen, listen while I read it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. It says this, the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he, talking about Jesus, while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. 
So, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be far worse than the first. The first deception they were talking about was, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And trust me, the Romans knew how to crucify. They knew also how to secure a tomb. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard there. I did a little study on what did that mean to post a guard there? Was it just like a guard? And you know, what it actually meant was it's a battalion of soldiers. It's a guard. And a guard in Rome, the tradition is that it's four guards every four hours. And so what's believed by most historians of what they did is they actually had the, the tomb with the Roman seal and you didn't break the seal or you were put to death. And, and so not only that safety measure there, but they're going to put four guards there and those guards are going to guard the tomb, and every four hours, that shift will change. And so if you think about a day, a 24-hour period, then every you know, six different times during the day, those guards are going to come into a shift. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a reason to keep them fresh, you know, make sure they don't get tired sleeping on the job. That wasn't possible. They only have to be awake and attentive for four hours at a time. And they wanted to make sure that Jesus, who is claiming to be God's son, and who had said several times to several different groups and people, including his disciples, that, hey, hey, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. They wanted to make sure they were just going to rule that out. And so because of that and because of them guarding the tomb, then it kind of moves against this theory that the Roman soldiers themselves took the body of Jesus. If you think about it, they're Jesus' enemies, right? And Jesus' enemies would have loved to produce the body when his disciples are going around a few days later saying, he, he raised from the dead, he resurrected from the dead. Jesus has risen and they would have loved to have said, you know what? Uh, we got the dead body right here. And yet that didn't happen. So that there is kind of kind of out. It's pretty easy for us to accept that. The Roman soldier stole his body from the tomb. But then there's another theory that comes on the, on the other side of that. And that's this belief that the disciples took the body from the tomb. Right? The, the, these 11 ordinary, uh, scripture calls them in the book of Acts, unschooled ordinary men. These guys devise this plan. They're going to overpower Roman guards, um, and, and they're going to take the body of Jesus. And yet we can find out even from scripture that that's, that's not what really happened. If we go back to Matthew's gospel, um, at the end of the passage, we just read about, uh, the guards, there's, there's more. And so let me read Matthew chapter 28. It says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Now check this out. Listen to this. Verse 4. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I don't know exactly what that means, but I, I imagine that the four guards that were there, as most historians would say and believe, that they're there, they see the angel, the stone gets rolled away, they think, oh my goodness, we are dead meat. They're just so shocked by everything that's happened. I don't know if they fainted, you know, there's an earthquake, the ground shakes, there's a lightning guy in white from heaven, you know. The, 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 you know I don't know exactly what happens, but it's recorded in scripture, it says that they were afraid of him and they shook and they became like dead men. 
Have you ever been, been, been around that? You're like, okay, so nothing's happening. They're just laying there probably on the ground. And they're just in a state of shock or they fainted. We don't know for sure. Verse 5. The angel said to the women there, do not be afraid. Okay, because, yeah, it's going to freak you out. It's going it's to make you fearful. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he laid. Then go and quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them along the way. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And while the women were on their way, listen to this. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So these Roman soldiers, they don't go to Pilate. They don't go to the Roman guard because the tomb is now open and Jesus is not there and the angel happened. Um, they go report it to the chief priests. They go to the Jewish people the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And they tell them everything that has happened. It's like, yeah, that guy that said in three days he's gonna rise, yeah, that so happened like right in, in front of us. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. And they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them this, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you all out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews, even to this very day. Now, I don't know how many times you've read the Easter accounts and all that happened with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. But I don't know if I just didn't read this far, but this was very, very interesting to me. And yet it goes and blows in the face of this thing, this, this, this idea that, oh, the disciples took the body of Jesus out of the tomb. The, the, the disciples took the body from the tomb, so there would be a, an appearance of a resurrection. And so the disciples, these 11 ordinary, small-town, uneducated men, devised the most elaborate and deceptive plan in all of human history— and they actually overtook the guards and did whatever. They not only pulled it off, then they've kept it a secret forever. And if you're like me, you, you think about that and you're like, yeah, taint, taint, taint likely. And, and, and this is just one part of the text that we're, that we're reading, you know, of the history of the resurrection and Easter and what's going on here. There are many other texts, even outside of the Bible, that speak to this. So the disciples took the body from the tomb. It's, it's interesting that people would even think that because they were so scared and such an awe and shock from it. I mean, they were hunkered down, hiding behind doors. Uh, I don't think that there was ever even a, an ounce of them that said, let's go steal his body. They were like, let's stay away from that so we don't get crucified ourselves. Then there's this other theory, and I'm not gonna spend much time on this because uh, most medical doctors today say not possible um, but there's this theory, it used to, used to be popular for about three minutes a few years ago, and I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's called the swoon theory. And, and the swoon theory is this idea that Jesus fainted while he was on the cross and became unconscious. 
He got into this unconscious state while he was on the cross. And so almost like being in a coma. And then he was like in the coma. You know, they wrapped him. They got him down. They was in the coma. And then they just put him in the tomb. And then he just like woke up. And so he really did kind of raise from the dead. But he really didn't actually die. And so he wouldn't be the atonement for our sins. And, you know, and, and again, it's one of those that you're like, you know, really? I mean, we have recorded the crowd and the soldiers the enemies of Jesus, actually recording that he was dead. When they go to get Jesus' body from the cross and they go to Pilate and they ask for the body, Pilate's like, is he already dead? Hey, go make sure. And the, and the guard comes back and says, yeah, yeah, we've checked him. He's already dead. I think it would be hard to be like unconscious and faint and have a spear thrust into your heart and just be like, oh, I'm just asleep, not a big deal blood and water flowing out. So, you know, again, you're laughing like I am. I'm like, swoon theory. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. But again, you know, we're trying to explain away the resurrection of the dead and Jesus being the son of God and having the power to resurrect and to do that. Because if we could get rid of the resurrection, we could get rid of Christianity altogether, right? I mean, it, it seems to be all built upon this event that he is the son of God and has the power over death and hell and sin. And he proves it in this. And so if we could somehow disprove this or... But then there's other things that you have to account for. We sometimes don't remember this, but Jesus appeared to many people on multiple occasions. So Jesus dies, and then after he resurrects from the dead, he actually appears to lots of people. One of those times is actually recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. At the end of that, that letter that Paul wrote, uh, he states that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses all at the same time. So 500 people saw Jesus in the flesh after the resurrection all at the same time. And of course, then we have all of these, these parts of scripture that tell us that he appeared to the disciples and he appeared to the disciples again. He walked with the disciples and he talked with the disciples and talked with two witnesses on the road to Emmaus, talked to you know, lots of different people at different times, shared meals with people, did a little teaching. Uh, you know, I mean, Jesus, I mean, there's all these accounts of that. What's interesting about it is for us that, that are Bible people and, and, and know that the, the Bible is true and all the history and all the verification for this book more than any other book in the world, it's interesting because even in extra-biblical accounts, just historians from that time period actually acknowledge that, A, Jesus existed, B, that he was crucified and died, and C, that a bunch of people saw him after he was dead. So you throw those facts on the facts of Scripture, and you kind of say, wow, he appeared to the disciples, to his followers multiple times. We have all these recordings, even in extra-biblical, outside-the-Bible literature. And then there's one more that I kind of had to wrestle with. It's a guy by the name of Thomas. You ever heard of Thomas? He's one of the, he's one of the disciples. He actually gets this, this, um, this tagline, I guess, or this title. He's well known as Doubting Thomas. You ever use that term to describe somebody? Oh, he's such a Doubting Thomas. Such a negative term to uh, call somebody out on, right? It's like if they just can't see it or can't do it, you know, it, 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 they're a doubting Thomas. And, and so then we have to wrestle. That then, then there's Thomas. He's the only disciple who doubted Jesus in the flesh. Well, here's the thing is, even at the beginning when the women go to the tomb, they go tell the disciples, it says several times in the Bible that the, 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 the disciples didn't believe. 
It says they couldn't believe it. It says that they were scared. They had great fear. Uh, they were perplexed. They did not understand that Jesus was alive until they, until they saw him. And they had all seen him, but Thomas had not. So let's just read the story. It's in John's gospel, uh, just a few verses from where we began this morning in verses 1 and 2. John's gospel, chapter 20. Uh, the story of Thomas appears in verse 24. And this is what the scripture says. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is why he went by Thomas, okay, so, hey, Didymus, if, you, if that's your name, that's a strong name, okay? Um, and that might be a great name for a little, little baby boy, you know? We've got some babies. I know some, I've seen some pregnant ladies run around. If you've been really struggling with the name, Didymus might be the one. But anyway, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, he's one of the 12. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, like he really did raise from the dead. But he said to them, hey, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Hmm. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were gathered in the house again. This must have been the house where the disciples were, were hanging out since the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it says, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. In other words, fear not. I, I know it's a little freaky. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Like, wonder how Jesus knew. Um, Reach out your hand and put it up into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then in verse 28 says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He believed. And then in verse 29, Jesus says this. It says, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have still believed. And so Thomas, who's well known as Doubting Thomas, actually physically gets to be in the flesh and touch and see and be in the presence of Jesus. And he says, my Lord and my God, I believe in you, I have my faith in you. Yes, this confirms I saw the crucifixion. I saw the whipping. I saw the pain, the bleeding. I saw you completely dead, wrapped up, laid in a tomb. And now I see you alive once again. And then the question for me then after this is, what happened to Thomas? He's not mentioned really in the rest of the New Testament. So what happened to this guy that has this experience? You know, we all know him as, hey, it's doubting Thomas, right? Well, if you study the history outside of the Bible, historians say that Thomas, being a believer in Jesus Christ, actually moved from being a doubting Thomas to a dedicated Thomas. And because of this experience and this faith that he had in Jesus Christ, he actually becomes an evangelist and a missionary, and he goes east. If you follow a map from the Holy Lands and from Israel and the area around Jerusalem, he actually goes east as far as India. He ends up in India what we would call India today, way out east. And he's there as an evangelist, winning people to Christ and planting churches. And you want to know how he died? He was speared to death 
because of his faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd die for something I don't believe in. I don't think I would move thousands of miles away from home, off into a foreign land, to proclaim the truth of someone I didn't believe in, to build churches in his name, worship centers in his name, to gather and train believers. I'm thinking if I didn't buy that, I'm not going. And I'm sure not going to let him run me through with a spear based on something I don't believe in. And so I think you could settle it in your heart as I have. Thomas believed. Thomas believed in the resurrection so much that it changed the course of his life. And it's amazing as you read the stories of the disciples and even some of the apostles that followed Jesus later that weren't with Jesus, but the second generation of Christians, if you will. It's amazing to see how many of them were martyred. These men were thrown off of buildings, drugged to death behind horses, stoned, run through with spears, and some of them were crucified. Even to the point they said, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus was. Crucify me upside down because I don't want to be crucified as my Lord Jesus. The resurrection changed everything. Everything that the people thought they knew. And even the disciples who had spent this time with Jesus and all that they thought they knew. This resurrection changed everything. And it still applies to us who follow Jesus Christ today. It wasn't something that just stayed in the first century. I mean, folks, have you ever thought about this? With all the persecution against God's church that happened, these resurrection people not only will die for their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're passing on to the next generation and the next generation, and even in churches that are like Oakwood Christian Church here in 2022. How did we get here? It was these faithful men with a resurrection faith that said, hey, I'm going to share this. I'm going to pass this on with the world. And I think sometimes we lose this today. It's like the whole resurrection thing isn't a big deal to us. And yet, as throughout Scripture in the New Testament, they refer to the resurrection over and over and over again. This is about 20% of their sharing about the resurrection. I'd like to share it with you this morning. In Acts chapter 3. It says this, men of Israel, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 4, as they, being the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to them, being greatly disturbed because they, the apostles, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Later in Acts chapter 4, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you here today in good health. Later in Acts chapter 4, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The abundant grace was upon them all. In Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. In Acts chapter 7, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 10, 
you know of Jesus of Nazareth. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him up on the third day. Yes, he arose from the dead. In Acts chapter 13, men of Israel, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. God raised him up from the dead. God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. Later in Acts chapter 17, he being the apostle Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Later in Acts 17, he being God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And in Acts 26, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, is giving a defense of his faith before King Agrippa and Caesarea. In Acts 26, he says this, I stand, to, I stand before you this day testifying both to small and to great, stating nothing but, that the, but what the prophets and Moses had said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And it doesn't stop there, folks. That's just the book of Acts. There's many letters in the New Testament that talk about this resurrection thing. In Romans chapter 1, it begins by saying that he was declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection from the dead. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and we just did a series on this a few weeks ago. At the beginning of 1 Peter, he starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, as Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos, 65 years after his ascension to heaven, it is written this in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And folks, that's just part of it. Now, how many of us go around as Christians living our lives today proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's the most significant event in human history. He was fully dead, and yet he's fully alive. And these people understood what that meant. They understood. And that's why everywhere they went to proclaim, they keep mentioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, first of all, if you could see a resurrection today, I think you would attend. I mean, if we'd advertised, you know, online, hey, resurrection from the dead, come to Oakwood Christian Church. People would come. I mean, it didn't matter who it is, right? It's a big deal. But beyond just the shock and the awe of Jesus being resurrected from the dead, it's the power of that resurrection. Because these apostles knew, and these disciples and followers of Jesus knew from that first century that this changes everything for us. This is our hope. Our hope is not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Because Christ resurrected from the dead. And not only that, these men understood that Christ wants to resurrect our hearts and our lives today. He wants to call us out of the sinful, the sinful past, the sins that we're currently involved in, and calls us to walk in newness of life. And you may say, well, well, how, well, how do you do this? I mean, Scripture outlines, how do you accept Jesus Christ? He says you repent of your sins. It means you turn your back on your sinful life. You be obedient to Christ in the watery grave of baptism. 
And it's recorded in Scripture that when you raise out of that watery grave of baptism, you're commanded to walk in newness of life. Because guess what has happened? You were buried in your sin under the water of baptism, and now you are raised to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful picture of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and we get to put that on as believers in Jesus Christ. And we get to walk out our resurrection lives. And I know some of you are looking at your sin, you're looking at your life, and you made a mess of it, and you're like, man, I don't know if that's possible for me. Trust me, if you stick with us through this scandal series, you'll see people that did way worse things than you became followers of Jesus Christ and were saved and accepted Christ. And it's, it's amazing. What is the scandal of Easter, really? Is it really a scandal of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? As I begin to think about it more in, in preparing this message, I begin to think, you know what, that's not the biggest scandal of Easter. I think that the biggest scandal of Easter is a scandal of grace. I think that grace might be the scandal. Grace. Grace that comes because Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he gives us this resurrection power and this grace and forgiveness of sins through his blood so that we can have hope of eternal life and a future even here on earth walking with God. And this wasn't just a big deal. This was the deal for all of Jesus' disciples and followers. You see, all the rest of the religions of the world make it about doing. Religion is doing. You do this and you earn this. But with Jesus, it's already done. That's what's so scandalous about grace. With Jesus, that it's already done. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and what you cannot earn. Let that soak in. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You didn't do anything to deserve. You cannot earn it. Does that sound scandalous? I think that's the greatest scandal of Easter is this scandal of grace. Grace is by nature scandalous. Grace shocks us in what it offers. And if we're being really honest, it frightens us with what it offers sinners. A way out, a new way of life? What do you mean, you're just gonna forgive them? And act like it never happened? And treat them as a brother or sister in Christ? To walk out a resurrection life? Grace? Yeah. The greatest scandal of Easter may not be the resurrection, but the love, grace, and forgiveness of God. And I was thinking, how, 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 how do I illustrate this? And I could come up with a hundred stories from life. But I like to be a man of the word. And I thought, how does the scandal of grace show up in scripture? It's everywhere. You can even go back to the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's everywhere in the Bible. If you've been doing the devos with the church this year in the Bible app, you've seen already, we're in like first and second kings now, you see already the grace of God poured out on his people. 
the scandal of grace. Maybe, maybe it's best illustrated in Matthew chapter 20. You know, a farmer who pays a full day's wages to a bunch of lazy day laborers that only have one hour on their punch card. A scandal of grace. Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's a scandal of grace like Hosea in the Old Testament. A man marrying an abandoned woman and refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a whore. A scandal of grace. Or maybe it's better illustrated in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the insanity of a shepherd who puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue a single lamb that is so stupid to stay away and to wander away from the flock. Maybe that's the best picture of the scandal of grace. Or maybe it's found later in Luke chapter 15. The love of a father who continues to love and care for a son who has squandered his life and his inheritance on wild living and drunken binges. Maybe that is the best picture of the scandal of grace. And I could probably give you hundreds more examples, even just from the Bible. And if I thought it would penetrate any further into your mind or your heart this morning, I'd stay here till like four o'clock today and do it. But I think you've, I think you've heard enough. I think you've heard enough that you understand enough that it comes to a point now where you just have to make the choice. I either accept the grace and forgiveness of God or I reject it. I either accept it or I reject it. It's really simple. The Bible even says there's, there's sheep and there's goats. There's, there's going to be ones that choose to follow God and to accept his free gift of forgiveness and grace. There's going to be those that choose not to. But every person, when they come of age and understanding this, has to make that decision for themselves. The good news, that's also known as the gospel, is that there is grace and forgiveness of sins. If you will choose to repent, to walk out of that life of sin, and to walk into the loving and caring arms of Jesus. I always find the posture of the cross interesting. Arms open wide. Come to this man. He loves you so much. He gave his life, but he didn't stay dead. He showed the power over death. He showed the power over sin by coming back and raising from the dead. Folks, he is risen. He is risen indeed.